0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Chad Velasik. Today, we'll be talking to Shopita Parthasarathy about her book, Patent Politics, Life Forms, Markets, and the Public Interest in the United States and Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press last year. Uh, for now, I'd like to welcome our guest. Here's uh, Shopita.
1: Hi, Chad. Thanks. I'm looking forward to doing this.
0: Yeah, excellent book. Um it's such an interesting book because I think it, it makes a very important uh, intervention and, and analysis of something that seems to go understudied in the science studies field. And I think there's a lot of, especially through your book, you see a lot of opportunities there for that kind of analysis that you that you start in this in this very book. So um, before I get into the book itself, I was just wondering. If you could just tell us a bit about how you got involved in science studies and and how you became interested in patents in the first place.
1: In some ways, I uh, my journey into science studies is a pretty familiar one. So I started out as a science major, a uh, biology major in particular, and uh, you know was doing the things that biology majors do, but. Uh, I was also an ambivalent one. Um, I've always been really interested in questions of politics and law and public policy. And at some point in my undergraduate studies, I started taking uh, classes in sort of more bioethics, uh, or at least being exposed to those kinds of questions. And I'm dating myself a little bit now, but I was coming of age around the Time of the Human Genome Project and the completion of the Human Genome Project. And I sort of realized that there were a number of ethical questions and social questions that the genome project raised. And I realized that, you know, there didn't seem to be any kind of regulatory framework or policies to deal with it. And so I initially was interested in science policy. Uh, You know, I would tell people I was interested in that. Nobody knew what I was talking about. I'm not sure I knew what I was talking about. But I went to DC and I had a really formative experience uh, working for Presidential Bioethics Commission uh, on human radiation experiments. And as part of that, you know, people talk about how DC is a place where you see the sausage being made. And in particular, I saw, you know, in some ways, the things that I know now to be uh, the politics of science, you know, the sort of the ways in which, for example, we determine risk, And risk management strategies for public policy uh, involve, you know, value judgments, political judgments, feasibility judgments. Uh, And I saw those uh, in the process And, and at the time I was pretty judgmental about it and I thought that this was somehow polluting the purity of science. Uh, but in retrospect, I realized it was garden variety practice and it was probably good practice actually in many ways. Um, and, and then I sort of stumbled into, I was looking for graduate programs. I was interested in these questions. Uh, I stumbled into Cornell science studies program. And at the time that I started, I didn't totally understand the work that people were doing. Uh, I thought it was fascinating, but over time, uh, I, it, it resonated more and more with me, the idea that I could sort of combine um, my humanistic, social scientific, um, scientific, legal, political interests in one place and ask questions that I didn't think anybody else was asking. And I still don't think, you know, enough people are asking about um, science and technology continues to be, was then, and it continues to be what really motivates me and excites me about being a science studies scholar. Um, and in terms of patents, so I, my PhD dissertation was about uh, the development of genetic testing for breast cancer in the US and Britain. And the dissertation, and the, which became my first book, essentially demonstrated how these two countries which we tend to think of as very similar when it comes to science, and certainly we're both at the forefront of research into uh, breast cancer genetics, uh, actually developed really different approaches to genetic testing for breast cancer. And this had really serious implications um, for uh, healthcare, for healthcare professionals, for for users of these tests. And um, it turned out that intellectual property and patents in particular played an important role uh, in the United States context in particular, Um, uh, the the biotech company, Myriad Genetics, that that owned uh, patents on on the BRCA genes, as they're known, um, essentially was able to structure the genetic testing environment um, and also this had serious implications, um, as I said, for healthcare professionals and users. Uh, And this, I should say, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, you know, this work, uh, my book then ultimately had um, some impact on the uh, litigation around gene patents in the United States. So that's sort of how I first got interested in patents. You know, I was interested in the sort of initial questions that most people ask around patents on biotech, like how can these things be patented? How can human genes be patented? How can other kinds of life forms be patented? So that was sort of the first order set of questions. The second order set of questions, because I was doing comparative research, was that when I was in Britain, I noticed that there was actually this embryonic controversy around uh, um, gene patents in particular, but biotech patents generally, you know, civil society groups, citizens, the media, environmental groups, others were asking, you know, how why are we allowing these patents? What are the ethical implications? How can you own life like this? What will this do to the relationship between humanity and the natural world? What are the implications for research and healthcare? And and I was struck by the fact that it seemed like in, these questions were being asked in the European context and not in the US context. That turned out to be wrong, um, as I talk about in my book. But that was my initial impression. That was the initial one of the initial puzzles. Um, and I was also interested in the fact that European institutions seem to be um, addressed taking these concerns seriously in a way that u s. institutions did not, and that, I think is more accurate. And finally, I, there was this moment sort of that I think crystallizes some of my interest in in science, technology, and politics. And that's a moment at um, what's called an opposition hearing at the European Patent Office, where hospitals, public health organizations, civil society groups were challenging the patents on the breast cancer genes. And so I was doing ethnographic observation at at this hearing, and I had interviewed a number of the people involved already, and one of them was, for example, the head of the Belgian Society for Human Genetics. And at one point in the hearing, he turned around to me and said, um, "You." And so this hearing was taking place in 2004. And he turned around and said, you know, you can force us to go to war in Iraq, but you can't force us to accept your gene patents. Um, now, the Iraq war plays no role in my book. however. Um, that moment of sort of seeing politics in this technical space, in this technical discussion, really is a puzzle uh, that I kind of follow and kind of took me into a, a long journey into the patent system, essentially.
0: One could tell simply by reading your the appendix two here, the methodological note, just how much uh, went, in, went into researching for this book. It, you did was out like a hundred interviews, right? And then and then all this participant observation and you include all this history. So it seems it took a, a long time. When it, Did you get started on it?
1: I guess I would say, you know, I mean, I had some materials from the first book that were relevant. So I was able to use that. And that also helped me as I guess it always does. Kind of, you know, you have some sense of the lay of the land a little bit, or at least you think you do. Um, but I started in earnest in 2008. Um, and I think, you know, I say this in the methodological appendix, but I think it it bears um, noting for science studies scholars who are interested in intellectual property. You said at the outset that not many people study this sort of stuff. And one of my hopes is really that more people do. I think it's, it's incredibly rich and important. It's a central part of our science and technology policy infrastructure. And as you say, not enough people have studied it. One of the things, in addition, yeah, I did over a hundred interviews. I did um, ethnographic observations. sometimes I had some really interesting incidents trying to um, you know get into and get access to people who really aren't accustomed to being the subject of of research or inquiry or or scrutiny or or um, public interest explicitly, which is of course itself interesting because the patent system is a government system. so, the way, you know, that's a central theme in my book is sort of how the public interest is understood. Um, but the one one source of data that I think is, is not well known for people, um, but is incredibly important, I think anyone who studies government or bureaucracy would recognize that it's really important, ended up being um, what are called the patent prosecutions. So all of the documents that are submitted in relation to a patent are kept on file because they're, you know, these, this is a highly legalistic and bureaucratic domain. Um, And that's true in both the United States and Europe. Now, usually those patent prosecutions are used by um, law firms who are, you know, litigating challenging patents to see sort of what is the history uh, um, of the, um, you know, the, Claims of a patent, how does it evolve over time? Um, what are the judgments of the different uh, governing bodies? <clears throat> in fact, you know, some of the earlier ones I had to go to the US patent office's archive, I guess it's not an archive, but sort of depository, and you see all of these couriers that work for law firms who hang out all day um, who are waiting to photocopy these patent prosecutions to to and then take them to the law firms. But what's interesting about these patent prosecutions, especially in the context of controversial patents that I was studying is that that also means that the submissions of average citizens civil society groups are also there and so you really see in real time how the patent essentially is constructed how the logic around that patent is constructed what are the different things that are um, being considered legally politically um, they they're all sort of there now these these patent prosecutions <laughs> End up, you know, the most controversial ones they end up in the tens of thousands of pages. But, but they're extraordinarily rich sources of data um, for humanists and social scientists, for, for science study scholars who are trying to understand, as many of us do, emerging science and technology. Right? We see actually, emer- science and technology emerging in these patent prosecutions and the negotiations that take place, um, and. I'm sure that there are a variety of different uses for them that we as SDS scholars can can take advantage of far beyond what I've done. Um, and so I want to make sure that people know that those kinds of sources exist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of this material in this book is new to me. So I was particularly appreciative of the uh, beginning of the book with the acronyms and abbreviations because it's so technical, it's so bureaucratic that you really do need all these, uh, like a key to sometimes go back and go, wait, what, what is this one? You also really helped out with the um, other appendix as well with, with the timeline that I, that I could also refer back to. Um, And so that was really, really nifty in terms of being able to, Follow along this, you know, historic trajectory, um, although it's not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, linear, and in, in terms of its chronology, that uh, you you are able to show in this span just how much uh, has changed. Just e- you know, even in the past few decades, or, the, or or the end of the 20th century, how much these two systems between the U.S. and and Europe, how how they di- diverge. So, could you um, maybe talk a little bit about, in, in terms of introducing this comparison, uh, what, what were some of the initial uh, kinds of comparisons that you were making uh, in the field? You know, before you actually wrote, wrote this book up, what, what were some of the the comparisons that you wanted to? Really articulate to uh, your audience.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, and and in some ways, I want to pick up on on something that you said, and and I think that this is a theme that probably will, it certainly, I think, uh, goes through the book, and probably will our conversation, which is that that you know, extraordinarily technical nature of the patent system. You know i I argue and and believe that in part, sometimes that technical architecture of the patent system serves as a deterrent from much public attention or scrutiny. and um, and that kind of characterization is you know, sort of it's technical leave it we should leave it alone and and you know it's also objective. and um, and one of the things that's interesting, which I'll get um, get to perhaps in a second, is that I actually think that's one of the interesting places where the U.S. and Europe have started to diverge is that the um, the extent to which the technical um, characterization of the domain, which in the book I I refer to as an expertise barrier, that you know that's very strong in the U.S. context and it, and is 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 weaker in the European context um but yeah so um i guess to to set up the initial comparison between the united states and europe you know i, I sort of said already with my first book that that um you know in, in the case of the us and britain these are places that we tend to think of as as similar in most in most respects and and when you think about comparison um you know and this is something i often tell my students you know you want to choose sites where there are a lot of things that are similar, but maybe just one or two things that are different in interesting ways that can really help to then structure and guide comparison. And so, I chose the United States and Europe because these are two places that are at the forefront of innovation, that are both um, heavily invested. Um, we won't talk about Donald Trump for now, but heavily invested in the processes of globalization have. Um, uh, demonstrated their investment in the processes of economic globalization through their trade and intellectual property policies. They both were advocates advocates of um, the World Trade Organization's um, trade-related intellectual property agreement. They have worked to harmonize patent systems all over the world. Um, since the 19th century, this, this project has been going on. Um, they are two of the leaders of um, something that's called the trilateral, uh, which is an attempt not just to harmonize patent law, but to harmonize actual patent pra- patent examination practice. So, you know, these two, the patent offices um, at the the European Patent Office and the U.S. Patent Office will do test um patent applications with examiners to make sure that they generally are, are making the same kinds of decisions. So, so, you know, they're, they're generally, we tend to think of them as, as pretty similar, um, similar places. And so some of the initial differences that, um, you know, at least at first glance, there seems to be more vigorous controversy around um, patents on life forms in the European context than in the U.S., that that Europeans seem to be paying attention a little bit more, um, and seems to be at the very least kind of curious. The second um, dimension, which is sort of a, you know something that becomes, in some ways, both <laughs> a dependent and independent variable, is also often thought of as an independent variable, um, is the order public clause. So in Uh, Many legal scholars in particular, before I wrote my book, had published work um, that essentially said the reason that the Europeans are taking a more limited approach to biotech patents than the U.S., um, you know, so for example, in the book I talk about how um, patents on human embryonic stem cells are not allowed in Europe and they are allowed in the U.S., for example, So so legal scholars would argue that that's because Europe has an order public clause. And this order public clause is in the European Patent Convention, and it uh, essentially says that patents cannot be issued um, if they are considered contrary to public order or morality. And so that seemed like a perfectly good explanation in some ways, but it was... You know, upon scratching the surface a little bit as a social scientist, I started to see that there were some holes in this explanation. So, first of all, you know, the United States has um, a moral utility doctrine in case law that was established um, in the early 19th century. And, you know, so it, it seems on its face to be pretty similar, but it's kind of languished. So, the question is less. You know, there is something in Europe and there isn't something in the U.S. The question is, why does the European uh, legal framework matter in the context of biotech patents and the U.S. legal framework that's relevant doesn't matter in the context of biotech patents? Um, And then I also realized that there were differences even when it came to um, questions that didn't have anything to do explicitly with. Uh, morality. So you know, I talk in the book about um, how there are concerns about uh, the distributional impacts of patents on human genes and on plants, the impacts for healthcare and for agriculture and for food. And so that's though. In those cases, the order public clause doesn't get invoked, but there's clearly a, But there's both civil society engagement and a policy response. So. You know, if it's just the existence or non-existence of such a clause, um, then that it doesn't explain that either. Um, And then finally, simply from a historical perspective, as I was as I was digging, I realized that the order public clause. I mean, I I guess it's kind of obvious on some level, but the it's obvious in retrospect anyway, that the order public clause's meaning is. Uh, is a kind of modern bioethical meaning, right? It's applic- the way that it gets applied uh, in in the biotech context. I realized was actually a modern bioethical meaning, and that when it was um, first envisioned um, in the 16th century, obviously, um, you know, biotech was uh, not even, uh, you know, it was a glimmer of nobody's eye. So, so it meant something different. So the question then is how. How did the order public cause come to take on this meaning? How does it come to be central? How does it become a, um, a central language around which a lot of politics take place? Why does it play this role? So so those kinds of things became the kinds of questions that I think a science study scholar um, is really well positioned to answer. And so that those were the kinds of questions I mean that's I should say as a good interpretivist that sounds really coherent. I can't say that the process was as coherent as that, um, but that's sort of the I would say the 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 motivating questions behind the book that lead me to delve into historical deep historical questions questions around political culture and ideology um, are essentially motivated by. Um those questions that i um, that were elicited from these this contemporary comparison.
0: yeah, I think the what I was referring to before is is actually how huge this this project is, how uh, the magnitude of it um, is, is so substantial that uh, and it's intentionally bureaucratic and technical as you as you mentioned. And, and most of these cases but um the the fact is is that you know one is the benefits of of looking at this that is the 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 benefit of understanding this process is is so incredible as you, as you uh talk about in your conclusion, which I'm sure we'll get to um but it's also the fact that you know you were able uh to, in this book to articulate this this huge you know a technical process um in in different places and make it in, into uh, a book that on the one hand details a cohesive narrative uh and at the same time engages with some very uh, um you know and uh, enlightening kinds of uh, uh, interpretive ways of uh, understanding these these differences um, and I was going to, to ask you that, you know, in in your first chapter, there's there's a, a couple points I wanted to to ask you about. One is understanding public interest because I, I think you point this out that with public interest, this isn't something that we can take for granted. This is something that, um, you know, you know, it, it's something that gets formed, uh, like. Just, just like the material that we're actually talking about here that the patents are, are for. Um, but you do talk about as well um, how this is situated in terms of interest around like this framework that the use of moral objects and, and socioeconomic objects and, and techno-legal objects. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on you know what what the differences are uh, between these objects, and and how this relates to the the uh, you know divergence. I, I suppose you could say between the public interest of the U.S. and European patent systems. You know, let's
1: let's take the U.S. approach first. So, what I uncover in the first chapter of the book essentially is how in the United States we as is often cited, the patent system and intellectual property more generally is central to our very identity. It's it's discussed in the Constitution. And in particular, um, it is discussed, and this is something that I I continue to be kind of fascinated by um, this construction. So, you know, the idea at the time um, of the country's founding was that there really wanted to be great encouragement to have people participate. The idea was that if people participated in the patent system, that would lead to more innovation, more economic growth. And it was also a reaction to the European systems at the time, where it seemed more like a system of patronage, where, you know, people would get what were called patent privileges at the time. And, um, you know, these were, um, you know, things that entrepreneurs paid for, but, you know, it was a pretty uh, limited group of people who, who, who participated in that system. And so, um, in the United States, there were efforts to keep application fees low. There were attempts to ensure that the, um, that the, um, inventions were on public display to excite the public to participate. And, um, Scholars Mario Biagioli, for example, have argued that this is a demonstration of a democratic approach to invention, Um, and you know, sort of this is this is how um, you know everyone can participate. And 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 my my reading of it is that, and this is where the public interest gets constructed, that it's that that the public is understood as um prospective inventors. So that is kind of baked in at the outset. And so because that idea is baked in at the outset, the and this this has carried through over time. The idea is that everyone has an interest in a strong, robust, expansive patent system. Uh, that there is no alternative interest, right? That there's no um you know, that the essentially the inventor's interest is the public interest. So that's that's one piece of this story. Um, and the, you know, whereas in the European context, the. Um, the initial privileged systems ran into some trouble, um, partially because at that time, these privileges could last forever. They weren't like modern patents where you have a limited period of time, but you could have a privilege for, you know, so long as you were paying the fees, um, you know, in perpetuity. And so people were getting um, these patent privileges on essential items. It was causing public disorder. And so there is this moment, this is the origin of the order public clause when in the first patent law in 1623 in England, it's called the Statute of Monopolies, it says basically, we're not going to allow patents on inventions that are likely to cause where the patent is likely to cause um, riots or public disorder. So in that, in that language, there's a s- distinction made between the inventor's interest and some other interest, the public interest. And the idea that that patents are are bigger things than simply being tied to science or technology and commerce, that they actually have these socioeconomic impacts, that they are, um, uh, at that time, really socioeconomic objects, as well as, um, uh, you know, technical and economic objects uh, and innovation drivers. In later years, as I described, they become more explicitly moral objects. There's a moment where you know, the, in Victorian Britain, you can't have patents on sexual appliances. And, of course, in the biotech story, um, you know, they're, they're treated as moral objects. Whereas the evolution in the U.S. context is these are, you know, these patents are related to technology and commerce. And then by the early, um, early 19th century, as they start to develop an infrastructure to review patents, they start to develop a scientific infrastructure to review patents, and this is different than what's happening at that time in Europe. Now, eventually, Europeans develop an examination system, as I said, that's very similar to the U.S. system. But at but at that time, um, the U.S. is the first to say um, we need to um, have the best scientists, uh, the best natural philosophers, who are reviewing and considering. Um, these um, patents to find out whether they should be um, uh, issued or not. And so they take on um, a legal, a scientific dimension in addition to a technical and an economic dimension. And as I said, the the, the public interest is still in the patent system working properly, right? So that's, you know, that it's ordered. That there's what I discuss in the book, you know, procedural objectivity—that the procedures are followed according to science and the law. That's that's the primary um, function of the patent system, and that has managed, you know, um, I think is you know as I've said in part because the system has developed a, a variety of of ways of ensuring that it isn't challenged. Um, insiders in the system have have ensured that that hasn't been challenged in a serious way effectively. So, you know, essentially today when civil society activists try to say, no, you know, patents are have all of these implications, they are much broader than that. You know, it, the public interest is more complicated. There's a balancing that the, gov- the, that the government's role is to balance. It's not simply to award patents. The response is often... No, you misunderstand the system. This is a very narrow administrative law domain. It is not a regulatory domain. It is not prepared or invested in all of these things. People and you know, people produce patent monopolies. The patent system doesn't produce monopolies. And what's interesting to me is that a very different narrative is told in the European system, and what is important, I think, about comparison is that by putting those two narratives together into comparative perspective, it shows that both of them are political, right? That that they are both that neither of them is the natural um, state or explanation of the patent system, but rather that um, that that they, you know, that coupled with other episodes, of course, in the book are. The result of um, you know fundamentally different approaches to thinking about um, you know the relative roles I argue in the book of governments and, and markets when it comes to innovation.
0: One of the things that you, you were just mentioning uh, about this is that there's you know there's not some golden standard in which case you know the the other case is some sort of substandard. It's really the case that we are it seems, you know, reading through this book, it seems that this is this is a, a practice that is ongoing. Of course, that it, that uh, you know, new constructions around, um, you know, public and you know, interest and intent, um, and issues of of legality here continue uh, to be formed and constructed. Um, and one of the cases that you looked at here um, that. Really, I mean, it was, it was funny. One of the things that I was reading in the book brought me to a previous interview I did on science for the people. So, in, in the in the second chapter, you talk about um, Jeremy Rifkin. Um, so, I was wondering if you could elaborate on on you know his um, uh, context here, some of the things that he uh, uh, did to enter, try to intervene, especially in regards to you know, say like the. Uh, Biotech industry and, and uh, Diamond versus Chakravarti. So, um, what were what were some of the developments that came from that ordeal? You know, in the in the U.S.
1: Yeah. So this is the sort of foundational. You know, this is the real the moment of divergence or the moment of obvious divergence. I would argue that those. You know, I argue in the book that that the um, divergence that there are seeds planted in the U.S. and Europe. Um, That maybe people don't realize uh, much uh, before, but but it's the Diamond versus Chakrabarty case in the U.S. and the and the European Biotech Patent Directive in Europe um, that that are the kind of catalysts in these two, or I see them as the catalysts because they're the first moments where uh, U.S. and European uh, U.S. and Europe, let's say, are contending with. Biotechnology in a serious way in the context of the patent system, and they're dealing with it everywhere else. There, you know, as 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 other scholars in science studies have long observed, you know, there this causes challenges to the risk regulation regimes in these two places. There are um, questions about. Um, you know ethical frameworks and ethics committees and the sort of creation of the ethics committee as a deliberative body is in part produced through um, through biotech but it but it's also shaking the patent system in ways that other people have observed before, right it it it's you know when you have in the case of of uh, the Chakrabarty case, um a genetically engineered microorganism designed to eat oil, which is the um which is the life form that ananda Chakrabarty, who worked at general electric was trying to patent and you know he submits it to the patent office the patent office is not entirely sure what to do and you know sort of eventually um uh it it, it issues the patent um but you know this this microorganism raises some questions right is it a, is it a discovery is it an invention is it um Nature is it technology? so these are um questions that um as I said, other science studies scholars have have um, investigated. What I'm interested in the book is this moment as a as an important moment of kind of what what is governance in the patent system, who should participate, what are the issues that are relevant um and it's, it's enormously consequential in terms of setting the, setting the terms for that discussion going forward, again, in, in, in comparison to the European context. So what happens in the U.S. is for the first time, a coalition of civil society groups led by Jeremy Rifkin, who is simultaneously challenging um, government institutions in the United States um, around biotechnology and other places, but also submits an amicus brief in uh, in this case and raises issues that I think end up foreshadowing the next 40, 50 years of debate around biotech patents. So he he raises these questions that I discussed earlier around, you know, can you own life? What are the moral consequences? What are the ecological consequences? What are the distributional consequences? And, And what's interesting is he cites philosophers, ethics, Bodies. He cites the National Academies at one point to make a point about um, ecological implications. You know, it's it's a it's a it's, an, it's a very well br- uh, written Amicus brief, but it's really weird in the context of the patent system, both in terms of who's submitting it and in terms of the kinds of issues that are getting raised, and in kind and in terms of the kinds of evidence that's being leveraged and the way that it's being leveraged, and and all of these you know, things you see echoed in the in the chapters and in the cases afterwards in the book. And what ultimately happens is that there's a couple of things. So the first is, you know, I mentioned this idea of the expertise barrier, um, which is a concept I develop in the book. And I talk about how in the US context, these expertise barriers are essentially formal or informal rules that are, are um, that, ensure that the, you know, the policy domain can sort of maintain its technical dimension and keep out um, non-experts. And so what happens here is a rhetorical um, invocation of that barrier. Other amicus briefs respond and say, um, you know, the kinds of things that I mentioned earlier, you misunderstand the system. This is not the, this is not the place to have that conversation. That has to happen somewhere else. They also say, you know, maybe that conversation should happen in Congress, but not in the court system, because this has now become a court case, and this is we're talking about a Supreme Court case now. Um, and, and, the, and, and eventually the majority opinion, so a Supreme Court justice agrees with this. They also say this is you, you, you know, this is not the, the patent system cannot opine on this, and the Supreme Court cannot opine on this. If you want to address these ethical questions, that's for Congress to address and ultimately, you know, the it what is a split decision, a 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court, they they decide that anything under the sun made by man um is patentable. Um and that sort of opens up the floodgates. But what is also important and interesting to me is that, you know, the Supreme Court invites Congress to address these these moral concerns that Rifkin is is is, is um um, raising and they don't. So, what's interesting to me, and again, this is another place where the comparison I think brings out this difference, is that this is a place where the notion that patents and the patent system is te- techno-legal is is reinforced. Because what's happening, what ultimately happens in in the European system is that the European Commission submits um, a law to the European uh, Parliament, essentially trying to echo what, what has already been decided by the Supreme Court in the United States, You know that these life forms will be patented. Um, they do so at the request of the biotech industry in Europe who wants some kind of clear guidance on patentability. And almost immediately, the European Parliament and the European Parliament at this stage is pretty weak, so you know it, it's it's strange that they that they make this move, but it tells you something about the importance of these issues and the po- politics of it is that they immediately say, "Wait a second, this is not a techno legal question. We're not just going to like pass this thing and and let it go. This is an ethical question, an ecological question, a distributional question. So all of the things." that Rifkin is talking about, the European parliamentarians themselves. This is long before civil society groups are getting involved in this discussion in Europe. They themselves say, yeah, it is those things. Um, And so ultimately, it leads to a, um, a piece of legislation that takes 10 years to pass, um, that ultimately does involve a lot of civil society engagement and a number of tweaks. And as I said earlier, a reinterpretation of this order public clause to have this bioethical meaning. And so in sum, what ends up happening is that it is, is both a reinforcement of the patent as a techno-legal object in the US and as a moral and socioeconomic object in Europe, but also about what the nature of these domains are is also made in these uh, in these moments. So it it gets reinforced as not a place for politics, not a place for groups like Science for the People that Rifkin is involved with, and those guys are you know somewhat involved in this discussion in the U.S. It's not a place for that. Whereas in Europe, you know, there are parliamentarians in the debate talking about postcards that they're getting from environmentalists. Um, and how that shapes their discussion and decision making, right? So in fact, those kinds of voices are seen as directly relevant to the conversation uh, in the European context where where they're 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 seen as completely irrelevant in the US. domain because it's seen as an objective domain where um, uh, both these questions, but these participants are not relevant.
0: Okay, so in your book, you discuss uh, some different cases here um, regarding, uh, patents, you know, related to embryonic cells related to, to human genes and and plants and the oncomalice, et cetera. So could you, could you elaborate on, on some of these, these cases that make up a a big part of your book here?
1: Sure. So they are for the most part, fairly well-known, um, uh, cases, although I'm not sure that they've really been delved into comparatively um, in terms of, of patents. And what I try to do in the book is talk about how um, they are different or interestingly interesting comparatively in terms of, you know, whether they're patentable or not patentable, these different life forms, but then use each of them to talk about a different um, Dynamic, a different political or governance dynamic. So um, the first, I talk about genetically modified animals, uh, and the Oncomouse in particular, the um, uh, you know uh, patent on a mouse genetically engineered to get cancer. And in you know the the basic story in terms of patentability there is that you know they genetically engineered animals, patents on these are allowed. Um, the uncle-mouse patent in the U.S. context is quite broad. Uh, it covers any mammal. Whereas in the European context, after, you know, well over a decade of litigation, um, it becomes, it, it's conceived quite narrowly. Um, so it's, you know, um, focused on a mouse uh, genetically engineer to contract cancer, the patent itself. So So that's the difference in terms of patentability, but I use that case to talk about how actually These are really different moments in terms of um, uh, determining who can participate in these domains and to some degree, what kinds of issues and concerns can be raised. So, you know, the interesting thing about the animal patent comparison is that it's a moment where we see that there's a controversy raging uh, pretty, pretty heavily in both places, Instigated by animal rights activists, farmers and environmentalists to some degree, uh, in the u s context, this debate starts in Congress. It moves into the courtroom, and essentially, you know, uh, I, I kind of liken it to a Goldilocks story in that activists are trying you know different ways of getting into the patent system, and each each time they're rebuffed, they're rebuffed rhetorically uh, in the context of Congress. In the context of the um, legal system, to me, this is particularly interesting and important. They um, are told essentially that they lack legal standing; uh, that the that they are irrelevant to the question of patentability and the question of. Um, you know, whether uh, there's a procedural question that they try to bring um, a challenge on and, and the courts say, you are not relevant here. Why? You know, y- you don't have a, um, a dog in this fight. And to the court, the, do- the person who had the dog in the fight would be someone that you're um, uh, uh, who is an economic competitor right so that's again going back to the way that this that this debate is conceptualized this issue is conceptualized in the US context so so if the only relevant participants are economic competitors then that shapes the kinds of issues that are relevant and the kinds of evidence that's relevant by contrast in the european system the debate takes place in what you would imagine to be the most technical space of all the european patent office but they decide, in part, they're starting to have this discussion themselves, but they're also guided by the, um, the biotech patent directive I mentioned earlier, and they engage in this weighing up test. And the weighing up test requires them to, to balance animal suffering against the benefit to humankind. And so um, they there are a couple of things that are interesting about this. This requires the patent office to then wade into new kinds of arguments, new kinds of evidence, it has to take evidence that it used to think of as being, you know, evidence of an invention being new, and think use it to to engage in some kind of risk assessment. It's also accepting um, uh, activists as as legitimate participants in the discussion. This is very important. So um, uh, the opposition mend- hearing that I mentioned earlier, you know any third party can bring uh this opposition within 9 months of its issue a uh, uh, 9 months of a patent's issue on any grounds and so here you have this wide variety of groups bringing bringing these kinds of oppositions these challenges and so here you have a much wider set of participants and they're submitting a whole suite of of um, arguments and evidence that looks really different than what's happening in the U.S. context, and and you also see the European patent system, European patent office in particular, struggling to kind of, you know, essentially acknowledge that this this kind of stuff is is relevant. Um, so that the you know the next chapter then builds on this a little bit. It, it talks about the stem cell cases, um, specifically human embryonic stem cells, and what's interesting to me, I think, a, a main point there is not just that different issues are being raised and different evidence and different participants, but in fact, that the debates themselves take on a very different um, valence. So in the U.S. context, uh, sort of recognizing after decades of fighting that the moral concerns are not going to get any traction, um, the kinds of questions that become relevant to the patentability of human embryonic stem cells in the U.S., are really questions about whether or not patents stimulate or stifle innovation. So that's a a, a, um, specific kind of question. And I should note that in the U.S. today, that seems often to be the central question um, to the extent that the patent system is being challenged. That's the central ground of the challenge. Um, Whereas in the European context, it is a deeply moral question, right? It's, you know... Are human embryonic stem cells leading us to commodify life? If, if it is, then that's deeply problematic. It violates the order public clause. Um, and so, again, as I said, human embryonic stem cells are not patentable in the, in the European context. But more importantly to me, for the context of this book, is that it, it, that with this comes a specific kind of acceptable terms and type of debate. And then finally, in the last chapter, and I sort of um, talked about this earlier, it's a discussion about um, you know distributive implications essentially. And what I argue is that you know this is where I talk about um, a case that probably a lot of listeners have heard of this um, gene patent case in the United States. And and on its face, the gene patent case looks like it's um, a a a real sea shift because. You know, gene patents are ruled to be unpatentable in the United States. But I argue that actually it fits very much within the techno legal argumentation um, or a techno legal approach in the US. And, um, you know, these these real concerns of the challengers that are really about what are the socioeconomic implications for research, for healthcare, of having gene patents, uh, those issues are not seen as relevant. Um, And in fact, there's enormous work that's done to separate um, or, or to kind of um, invalidate the idea that patents patents are cause monopolies. Rather, they say patent holders might choose to engage in a monopoly, but patents don't cause them. By contrast, in Europe, what you see is that these distributive implications are taken seriously. So they're seen as relevant to the system. The idea of a patent-based monopoly is seen as legitimate and relevant and this is a moment where you see other parts of the policymaking apparatus, other parts of the science and technology policy apparatus coming in to being. So you have national government starting to say, okay, we need to pass legislation that limits patents and certain kinds of patents or requires compulsory licensing if there's a distributional problem. Uh, so, so the real conclusion in that, in that chapter is that it is, you know, again, you see differences in terms of patentability, but from a political perspective, you see differences in terms of what the role of the patent system is, what the role of the patent system is, is broadly in terms of governing science and technology. And, um, and again, in terms of, um, you know, what the public interest is, and what the role of the patent system is in serving that, that public interest.
0: Right. In terms of the the public interest, and in your conclusion, you talk about some of this growing distrust over, you know, not just not just patent systems, but science and technology policy making domains in general. Um, so I was wondering, in in terms of what you see going forward, you know, um, or at least since you know you, you finished the book, um, what do you think in terms of prospects of the of the patent system? I mean, in the conclusion, you do talk about reform. You also talk about um, Hybrid expertise and and maybe maybe the role that you know social scientists and and humanists could could play um, in some of this change. So so could you elaborate on on some of that? Yeah, sure.
1: So I think um, there is ample role for uh, humanists and social scientists to play an important role in the patent system. We have, you know, I talk about in the book now um, in both the US and Europe, patent offices have a chief economist. I think thinking about um, a chief social scientist or a chief ethicist is an interesting idea. Uh, I also think about it in the context of something that has taken uh, the European Union by storm, and that's responsible research and innovation. For the most part, discussions about responsible research and innovation, you know the idea that we want to make sure that science and technology are, are produced um, to benefit the public, in a real way and that this needs to be an upscre- upstream discussion, you know, those have been conversations that have taken place largely um, in research policy or what we might consider to be traditional regulatory domains. They haven't taken place so much in the context of the patent system. And so what does it mean um, for the patent system to take seriously um the ethical, social, um socioeconomic, public health, environmental dimensions. Um, that requires patent systems and patent offices, perhaps in particular, to uh, take uh, to to change how they think about expertise uh, in some in some fundamental ways. I understand that that's uh, a, a difficult road. Um, for 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 example, technical bureaucracies, but I think that what I have demonstrated in the book suggests that these are concerns that are only growing, especially in a in a in a moment where we're seeing increasing inequality across the world. Um, and so, these questions, those ethical and socioeconomic questions in particular around science and technology, need to be addressed in a serious way somewhere in government. And I don't think. Um, certainly, in the U.S. context, they're they're being taken seriously. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me, um, you talked about sort of what's happened since. So, one of the things that I've become very interested in is the fact that in um, the CRISPR patents, you know, everybody's talking about CRISPR these days and gene editing. So, the you know the the main um, patent holder, at least for now, is the Broad Institute, and the Broad Institute has um, uh, requires what it's called what some people are calling ethical licensing so it has restrictions in its um, uh, in its ethical um, um, is it, restriction in its licenses in terms of how the patent can be used on what kinds of research and that's incredibly uh, interesting and important but there's a fundamental flaw which is that it relies on the Broad Institute's sense of ethics, uh, the Broad Institute's sense of what should and shouldn't be, what kinds of research should and shouldn't be allowed. Um, And and that is problematic, and that is the role, at least, we usually think of the government as being the one um, that really is in charge of the public interest. And so um, it's important, I think, to think about that.
0: Well, Shobita, we... um... Taking up a lot of your time, I just want to wrap up by asking you, you know, in addition to that that piece that you're working on right now, what else are you working on currently? Or what's next?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, um, Chad. So I um, and my new project in some ways is very different from what I've done in the past, but in some ways is very similar in the sense that I'm still interested in this intersection of innovation and the public interest. and And in particular... I'm looking at um, technology that has been designed, at least in theory, to help the poor. And of course, this has a long history from the colonial period. Today, we see it more in the context of social innovation and entrepreneurship, but we often see technologies being deployed um, as a means of of providing social benefit, in particular um, around helping the problems of poverty. What's interesting to me about these these efforts is that they're often unsuccessful, and yet they persist. Uh, so some of the cases that I've been looking at, for example, have been toilets, sanitary pads, cook stoves. These are cases where you know, these are fairly mundane technologies. What's interesting about them is that they are um, proposed, they're built, they're not really taken up, and yet... Um, they are, they persist. And so I'm interested in the political machineries that shape the way we approach these technologies that allows these kinds of interventions to persist. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there's a new uh, movement in development economics um, to, to do evidence-based interventions, to bring in, um, you know, clinical trial techniques, for example, to kind of, you know, that way you can make better bets. My argument would be, and any science studies scholar would would argue, I think that of course even those in those kinds of evidence based studies are themselves political. They're part of the political machinery, um, and so they wouldn't actually solve the problem because the problem is more fundamentally something about the way we understand the relationship between technology and the poor. And so I'm interested in unraveling that, maybe bringing some structure to the, uh, our understanding of that. Again, as in the in the patent book. Um, you know as an interpretivist design, you know, my approach is usually to focus on something that I think is a pressing policy problem, but to do an in-depth interpretive analysis to give us greater clarity in how we understand the problem with the idea that hopefully it might contribute to policy interventions.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a really interesting and important project. Uh, I wish you the best of luck on that. And I just wanted to thank you again for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really fun.